Pentecost Sunday is one of these days that um, I think is one of the most sacred days. If you put Easter and Christmas But most of us grow up without celebrating Pentecost Sunday. But it is so critically important to the Christian faith that I wanted to give it some more presence. So here's, let me just say this up front. don't have time to unpack everything about the historical significance of this day. I'm going to only have time. I grew up with some amount of Bible study and Bible awareness. You will recognize there are significant days that kind of culminate. On Pentecost Sunday. If some of those days get lost on you, we can talk a little bit more so that this begins to make a little bit more sense. So in Acts chapter 2, we have a very specific or one set of downs that changes the momentum of the game and it puts it in a whole different direction. Within God's people, not just the Jews. Now, if you're listening... ...so long... But what we have here is God's heart being revealed from what it was intended to a people who would reflect my love, my is join heaven and earth. Christ has a heaven and earth, and he imparts his spirit into because it distinguished not just a, a sort of cultural or regional that was the message and that was what God has been trying to do the people of God who sort of a, a accepted him as a like a monopoly that says this is Pentecost has this incredible movement, and in Acts chapter 2, we start reading about these things. Wind, which is always going to be indicative or symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So when we read 
And so uh, as they're going around, wait a second. If you know your history, you know that about Genesis chapter 9-ish or so, God is trying to save the people from themselves. And what does he do? At the Tower of Babel, he confuses all of the languages. So there's this new technology that had emerged called brick and mortar. Up until then, it had been huts made of mud. But now they have this new technological advancement where they can now architect this tower into the sky in order to be like God. They missed their place in, in the created order. And God's going, oh my God. Well, I guess, I don't know if God would say, oh myself. Um, oh my word, these people are not getting it. I have to separate them into people groups. And all of a sudden, Babel literally translates confusion. And now you have the birth of people groups. Fast forward all of these years, like a century later, and God is making... in their own native tongue. God's not doing necessarily a new work. God's furthering a work that begun thousands of years earlier. hundred people stick their hand in the air and declare that they want to be followers of the way of Jesus. Now, the early The, the resurrection of Jesus, that this idea of new life wasn't just a one-time thing, but could be experienced again and again. And so it says that the multitudes, up to 3,000 people, wanted to declare their allegiance to following after Jesus. And what did they do after that? Was that they chose to be baptized. And when they said, the way to do this is to new Christian identity. There was this new identity that they're going to identify with the life of Jesus. Right? So, what happens here, I gotta go, there's a quote by Rich Velotis, and he says, the Holy Spirit is not a reward. Wait on him. Now that's really significant for what we're going to unpack through the history of covenant relationships. got fascinated by Hebrew study. So I read most of the things she puts out. I have several books that she's written, but she was describing what was actually No, what the Jewish people were doing was what the Jewish people still do today and were doing all along, celebrating one of the huge festivals called Shavuot. Shavuot marked the 50 days 
happened to Sinai? Did you see the movie Prince of Egypt? This is God with all of the sort of spiritual pyrotechnics. And he comes down with the, the, the Ten Commandments and he's trying to give direction. What this signified in the history of God. my people and I will be your God. That's why when Jesus has a sort of coming out party, his very first miracle was what? Water. Connected to their original covenant with God. So 50 days, and this is where we find ourselves, roughly. where they had come to Jerusalem to see and, and to celebrate, to come. God is a saving God, and he delivered us from bondage and captivity, and he chose to wed us as his chosen people. was the multitudes had gathered and the city was packed with spiritual pilgrims. Experience in Israel's life to begin the new relationship and, and here at Pentecost, he replays it for them. Because what we have just heard and read about that Had descended just like it had done on Sinai and just like it had done at Pentecost, God is And maybe I've had the power go out, but I've never had this kind of experience. So it's really hard for us in our very empirically minded. is the Hebrew word for wind and the spirit of God or this cloud that would descend that we have seen at times through the history. And it might just look something like this from the movie Forest. As he is, was endearing. In fact, his life was this testimony, right? And, and, and he goes away, and, and who does he find in war but Lieutenant Dan? And then they both find each other back stateside, and Lieutenant Dan is just embittered, right? He's, he's, he's an... ...believe in God. Are you kidding me? Well, for it... ...goes down to get his shrimp boat going. And after months, there was not one shrimp, but then there... <laughs> so let's understand something about the temple that all of these pilgrims had arrived at, and now this ruach, this, this manifestation of the Spirit of God is just breaking forth. 
temple. The temple was built in roughly about 950 BC, about a thousand years before, um, before Jesus. It was built under Solomon. So this was King Solomon's temple. And when they christened it, right, and they decided that this was going to be the temple of God, guess what happened? All of the spiritual pyrotechnics, the ruach of God broke out in sort of these same tongues of fire. You can read Which really validates if you're going to embark on a building project, when you cut the ribbon. presence of God in the world was in the temple in Jerusalem. And so they built it. Now, fast forward about 500 years. In the year 530, the Babylonians come in and what do you do if your identity as the people of God has no house for your God. Another one of the minor prophets, and they convinced the people of God, in despite being in captivity, that we need to rebuild not only the wall, but the temple itself. And so... B.C., they get the temple rebuilt. But guess what happens this time? No spiritual pyrotechnics. They cut the rhythm and ribbon, and then all of a sudden they take in occupancy, and there was no movement. Wait a second, we followed the blueprints exactly how you prescribed the first time. Where's the goosebump? Where's the warm fuzzy? Where's the wind? Where's the tongues of fire? Not happening. Now, this would have been the exact same temple that Jesus would have break. Hmm. So let me just speculate because I was reading N.T. Wright this week. He's an Oxford theologian, a wonderful scholar, and his topic specifically, his expertise, is in Paul. But he was speculating on some things about what this felt like. Now, when God spared, they called it the Shekinah glory, the, the kind of, it, it literally translates the dwelling of God. Um, but what happens when you rebuild the second temple and you don't have the same sort of spiritual dynamics at play in its inauguration. And this is where he speculates that it could be that this has became the rise of Israel's legal. The first five books is called the Torah. And the Torah would have these interpretations, which was referred to as a rabbi's yoke. And so everyone had different points of emphasis in this. But what became so apparent was each rabbi would stress different things, what you could or shouldn't do on the Sabbath, 
or how you should care for the marginalized and the poor. That's what's most important. Or how you should um, participate in worship or, or how you should care for the environment. There was all of these sort of interpretations with different points of emphasis, kind of like denominationalism today. But the point is this, is that when they start to create all of these specified or emphasized rules, it got really... Hmm. I can summarize the law and the prophet in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And they're like... Is, oh, um, my yoke, that is my interpretation of Torah is easy, that is useful. My burden is light. Jesus comes to inaugurate a new day and a new way. N.T. Wright would suggest that, you know what? When the Holy Spirit did not show up at the inauguration of the second temple, it kind of suggests that you, the rise of this Pharisaicalism, this kind of self-righteousness, this legalistic view of following God, that if we could be more morally or lit liturgically pure, it might welcome God's spirit. God might show his favor on us again. And so the better we can follow the rules, the more likelihood that God will show up. Because we've seen God show up, just not in our generation, or not in this century. And so there is this picture that happens, and I think this is also a lie that we start to be, is somehow our impurity, our impurity supposedly is what's keeping God away. And what we know is not true is that this idea that somehow I can make myself more lovable to God. That if my righteousness could invite more of God to be more heavily favored or more heavily blessed, that's not how God works. And I think they start asking the same question that I think we start to ask is when God doesn't show up like we think God should show up, we start to wonder, am I really loved by God? Am I really one of his own? Am I really part of that chosen people of God? And if so, why are we being so persecuted? Or why is it so unpopular to be a Christian? Or why isn't God showing up like God showed up back then? Oh, I know. I've got to obey more rules. And that's what we start to discover is not actually true. And so, what we learn through Pentecost on this day, knowing the history of it, where now God, he didn't do it at the inauguration of the second temple, but now some 500 years later at this Pentecost Sunday, 50 days or so after Jesus's ascension into heaven, we have this moment where Pentecost happens. And on that day, this fire descended, not this time on a building, but on a people. So, not just one people, but all people. Not just the Hebrews who had been God's people. 
And so there is this picture. At that moment, Christianity began to see itself as a universal faith, not just some tribal changing event that we call Pentecost is that the new temple of God is found not in a building You are God's capital campaign project to reclaim, to restore a broken humanity. And to the extent that we yield our lives, respond to the Holy Spirit's Now, Paul used to love to say through the New Testament, you are the temple of God. And he said this multiple times to the young churches. No, you're the temple. Stop trying to have another building project. You're the temple, which actually morphs into what we understand. What our ecclesiology says is that we are all parts of one body. And everyone who comes to participate in this body makes up the fullness of the body. And while I occupy largely the role of a mouthpiece for Mission Hills Church, you might be a digit and you might be a shoulder to cry on. You might be a back that we mount up on because of some kind of maybe financial strength or emotional strength. Or you might be someone who has these helping hands. But the picture, when you realize that you're God's temple, is that we are the body of Christ. Because God wasn't going to fill a physical presence anymore. He wanted to fill the whole world. He moved from addition to multiplication. He wanted to move from a geographic location to all across the globe. Because you are now the residence of the Holy Spirit of God. And so what we have at Pentecost is what God chooses to do with his power and his presence through you and me. So the greatest thing that you could give yourself and the leanings of the Holy Spirit of God. And it involves a little bit to a lot of sacrifice. There has to be an accommodation for this new And one of the things I just think is so sweet. Now you have to understand, she was like a, a favored daughter in, in um, now she's a freshman at, at UT. And I said, you know, we were talking about because I wanted to talk through the lesson with, that she was going to be teaching with the kids. And after I got through all of the spiritual pyrotechnics, and so how can you argue that there are pyrotechnics?
about you. There is this poise and a graciousness that only reflects an extrovert. You don't have to be a fantastic evangelist or teacher. You don't have to be a rock star musician. To following after Christ. And so Pentecost fits perfectly within what God said The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house on their hearts. I will be their God. And they will be my people. And they will all know me from the least to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more there was this prophetic utterance of the outworking Holy Spirit that would reveal God's spirit to them that would reveal God's guidance and God's wisdom and God's direction to them that God's word as you open it up can be both confusing and inspiring at the same time because it's an inspiring word order your life this is what happens and so Pentecost is about what God does with his power and his presence within a, both a new and a final covenant. First covenant with Moses on the mountain and he comes down all radiant and he needs a veil because they're like, whoa, Moses, you're like a glow. And he comes down with these God's marriage and now there's this new and final covenant and he's saying, you are the temple. When you say yes to Jesus, when you pledge your allegiance and declare that you are a child of God, you now take up the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But here's what we know throughout all the New Testament, is that even though upon salvation you receive this deposit that is the indwelling, we see time and again in the New Testament that there is this second work, that there's a continual work, call it sanctification, call it a second work of grace, call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there is this infilling work that is progressive, that is growing like a muscle in need of exercise. And the way we flex that muscle, grow that strength in spiritual maturity is us being tuned into the Holy Spirit so that when we get a check in our spirit or when we feel a sort of hesitation or an urging, it might be something we pray about. It might be something that we just respond to. But that's how we begin to grow in, in the reality of the Holy Spirit of God. And so let me just summarize by saying his promise is that I am with you in all things and will work through all things. It's easy to think that God's not with us when things are going sideways or things have fallen off the rails. But what does Pentecost mean? Pentecost is what you want to happen in you. Not just a group, 
not just to your church, it's what you want. And so I would encourage you to pray a prayer of God, I believe in your son and I believe in your Holy Spirit, but would you do a further work? I invite your Holy Spirit to continue to do a new work. To the extent that we rely and respond in it, God's spirit is intended to grow within us. And then the spirit helps us carry out Jesus's work of salvation to all people. See, this is so much beyond just a static religion. This is supposed to be a dynamic faith growing in a kind of spiritual intimacy that most people don't ever get to experience. But when we see this ruach of God, tongues of fire that can sound like joy and blessing and encouragement and affirmation. And because what right now we see is tongues of accusation and blame. That's not God. And we have a chance to be and house the Holy Spirit of God, and you are the temple. So I'd like to pray with you uh, as we close, and then I'm going to ask Damaris to come up and lead you in sort of a reciting prayer. But let me just stop and ask these questions as you just close your eyes and, and maybe bow your head. Uh, I would just say, have you experienced, or to what extent have you been able to experience the presence of God? Does that feel like something foreign to you? Or does that feel like something that's been years? Either way, I want you to pray for a growing awareness of God's presence in your life. I think that's a super important prayer to pray regularly, not once and for all. Do you have an awareness and a desire of bringing God's salvation? God's healing and help. To be a Christian is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And God's active work in this world is trying to live out and bring restoration. So how does that shape your to-do list? How does that shape the desires on your heart? And in what ways does your Christian identity form your response to the needs God, I pray that you would just speak to us during these moments as we declare your worth and we praise you. As we invite you, pray that you would speak to us in a real personal way. Guide us. Pray for the infilling of your Holy Spirit that we might be baptized into your glory.